You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, How to Turn Your Independent Film into a Money-Making Business by Alex Ferrari. For a free copy of the audiobook, head over to www.filmbizbook.com. Welcome to the Director Series Podcast, a show dedicated to deconstructing the work of some of cinema's most celebrated and influential film directors. I'm your host, Cameron Bile. One of Mnugin's programs at NYU was a summer workshop where teams of students performed designated roles on the production of a short film, a model that's since become widely adopted in film schools across the country. Scorsese had noticed that the coveted role of director often went to whoever wrote the selected script, so he took the initiative and penned his first student work. What's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? My name's Algernon, but my friends call me Harry. Shot in six days over the summer of 1963, the short blends Mel Brooks's absurdist brand of comedy with the energetic expressionism of the French New Wave to tell the story of an anxious writer who becomes so entranced by a particular photograph that he suffers a terrible case of writer's block. He meets and marries a young bohemian girl whose carefree ways release him from his internal struggles. That is, until her art begins to take a crippling hold on him as well. Scorsese's supernatural grasp of cinematic language is startlingly evident from the drop, as if he were desperately hanging on to the reins of a careening talent he doesn't yet fully understand. Despite the seeming chaos of its style, What's a Nice Girl Like You Doing in a Place Like This actually operates from a deliberate approach, implying a story much larger in scope than Scorsese's first student work could realistically achieve via the repeated use of still photographs and other techniques like a playful voiceover. In the absence of a pronounced voice of his own, the inspiration from influences like Federico Fellini and Luis Banuel become more immediate. Scorsese moves quickly, perhaps so as to gloss over the uneven seams of the film's construction. He leans into the carnival-esque tone of his story, employing circular dolly movements and other stylistic tricks to convey a sense of idiosyncratic exuberance in the face of severely limited resources. The finished work would prove rather consequential for Scorsese, earning him a scholarship that took care of his subsequent year's tuition, but it also seems to set up a central thesis animating the whole of his filmography by closing with the haunting line, Life is fraught with terror! Scorsese made another short, which would cement him as a kind of rising star within NYU's film program. Titled, It's Just Not You, Murray, the piece plays like a scrappy prototype of the classic rise and fall narrative that would shape later iconic works like Goodfellas and Casino, a pursuit of the American dream's gleaming promise by any means necessary ultimately torpedoed by the fatal flaws of hubris and ego. See this tie? $20. See the shoes? $50. See the suit? $200. Ira Robin stars as the titular Murray, Sam DeFazio as his buddy Joe, and Andrea Martin as Murray's aloof wife. Scorsese's mother, Catherine, even appears, the first in a long string of cameos that reinforce the director's highly personal approach to storytelling. A blend of gritty urbanity, blunt force violence, and unexpected humanity, the short wields the character of Murray as a fourth-wall-breaking, unreliable narrator, in a manner that foreshadows the likes of Leonardo DiCaprio's Jordan Belfort in Wolf of Wall Street. 
Like a true Scorsese hood, Murray identifies as an enterprising businessman instead of a conniving criminal. That his business involves the illicit production of bootleg gin is a trivial matter in his quest to become a productive member of high society. While the distinctive character of Scorsese's voice finds its first expressions here, it's not just you, Murray, nevertheless wears its influences on its sleeve. His love for Italian films of the era is evident in a climax that rips directly from the ending of Fellini's Eight and a Half, complete with Murray dressed as Fellini himself. The self-referential, postmodern tropes of the French New Wave can be felt in the short's acknowledgement of its own filmic making, with Murray breaking the scene to address the sound man. This way. All right, cut the sound. Come, Murray, come over here a minute, will you? Cut the sound. So the kids look like... Cut the sound! You, there, with the glasses! Cut the sound! Scorsese's own formative passion for American musicals manifests in a short sequence that allows him to try his hand at the genre's signature techniques. The outright copying of beloved films is an essential part of the student filmmaking process, allowing aspiring directors to deconstruct the craft behind their favorite works while uncovering their own voice in the process. As Scorsese gained more confidence in his craft, the hallmarks of his voice would emerge. As such, It's Not Just You, Murray showcases the first iteration of many stylistic and narrative signatures, the blonde in a white dress, adultery, ambition, and crime. The short is also the earliest instance in his adult work, wherein his Italian heritage shines through, evidenced by music that evokes Italian marches, or the aforementioned trope of a blonde in a white dress, rooted not so much in a personal affectation for the type, but in the dogma of his Roman Catholic background, which frequently manifests in young men as a kind of reductive Madonna whore complex, and as a primary driver of the sexual conflicts throughout his later work. For most college students, graduation marks the end of one's school days and the entry into the real world. For young Scorsese, the commencement of NYU's undergraduate class of 1964 meant a doubling down on the idyllic bubble of academia. In his capacities as both a graduate student and a professor, he would embark on a series of film projects that would launch his directing career in earnest. The first would be one of his earliest forays in a documentary titled New York City, Melting Point. Far more consequential, however, would be a loosely autobiographical short about rambunctious young Italian-American men he called Bring On the Dancing Girls. It was an ambitious project. The first NYU-associated work to be acquired on 35mm film, Scorsese's film was produced in part by his mentor, Haig Mnugin, and financed with $6,000 from another loan arranged by his father. It wasn't long until his efforts ballooned in scope, resulting in the production of his very first feature film. During this busy, exciting time, Scorsese was able to shoot a graduate student short called The Big Shave, his first work in color, and, as a metaphorical howl against the bloodshed of Vietnam, his first overtly political piece. The film takes place entirely in a colorless bathroom as a man undergoes his morning shaving ritual. Only this particular morning, he shaves until his face bleeds profusely, finishing it off by slitting his throat and letting the blood pour into the sink. Shot mostly in punchy close-ups, the big shave acts as something of a color study, studying the contrast of dark red blood against the pristine ivory sink with an almost fetishistic curiosity. While the short definitely stays consistent with Scorsese's career-long fascination with visceral violence and bloodshed, it also plays to the iconography of his Roman Catholic heritage, specifically the old-world notion of self-flagellation and physical punishment as a way to redeem one's sins. It's a pretty morbid piece of work, especially when considering the playful big band song that Scorsese employs to counterbalance his macabre visuals. Here's our president, 
And the majority of the people, my friend, and if he's not yours, and I suggest... His mind don't give off enough beautiful buckets. Why he gonna send my wife back and brothers over there somewhere they don't belong? As a member of a group of film students who dubbed themselves the New York Cinetrax Collective, Scorsese naturally emerged as a creative figurehead. Though the collective championed the removal of individual authorship from their work, the production of street scenes required a singular presence in the edit bay to supervise the assembly of disparate protest footage into a coherent story. In an attempt to capture the roiling anger of the student anti-war movement, Street Scenes gives an eyewitness street-level account of two protest rallies. The Hard Hat Riot on Wall Street on May 7th and 8th, followed on May 9th by the Kent State incursion protest in Washington, D.C. The film combines protest footage with heated symposiums in student dorms, as well as dispassionate conferences in a newsroom in a bid to capture the unbridled passions of American youth fighting against the twin might of the military-industrial complex and the well-oiled engines of commerce. Featuring appearances by present and future collaborators like Verna Bloom, Jay Cox, and Harvey Keitel, in addition to Scorsese himself, Street Scenes is a raw howl for peace, rendered in the handheld casual vernacular of direct cinema. Though IMDb lists the film gauge as 35mm, the hardscrabble mix of black and white and color footage suggests itself as the cheaper 16mm format, a far more likely scenario given their expectedly limited resources. Scorsese oversees the collective efforts of friendly peers like Schoonmaker as well as his students, including a young camera operator named Oliver Stone. Though street scenes originated as a collective effort, Scorsese's burgeoning artistic identity can't help but assert itself. The inclusion of pre-existing rock tracks from bands like Canned Heat and Blind Faith might be the most conspicuous example, with the film's general unavailability in the public forum likely owing to the expectation that these tracks were never properly cleared or licensed. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. There's also images that speak to Scorsese's upbringing in a world caught between crime and faith, with protesters climbing up on a cross, or clashing participants lobbying their fists against their enemy as a kind of impotent substitute for their inability to reconcile the simmering conflicts within their own ranks. Cinema itself becomes a kind of unspoken theme throughout street scenes, a prelude to larger documentary explorations of the art form like A Personal Journey Through American Movies or My Voyage to Italy, as well as narrative meditations like Hugo. This starts with the formation of the Cinetrax Collective itself, underlining the communal attitude towards filmmaking espoused by Scorsese's generation as they search for an alternative to the capitalistic hierarchy of traditional production. The opening finds students discussing the form and theory of cinema, especially as it pertains to conveying their anti-war message. They simply are very casual about aesthetics in cinema, in the sense that, in the sense that they don't want to work, they think they can just press the button and shoot. Their formal education in film makes for a palpable media literacy rivaled only by professional craftsmen. That they grew up immersed in this medium allows them to harness its power to an unparalleled extent. There's a reason why the filmmakers of the 1960s and 1970s loomed so large over the art form, and why so many groundbreaking works were produced in that era. Street scenes, like other works from its time, a cinema made by those with an overabundance of passion and a complete lack of things to lose. Untempered by the cold, compromising realities of the adult world, these young voices endeavor to point out complicated injustices with the clarity of condemnation. They refuse to inherit this broken world, better than to simply smash everything up and start over fresh. 
The raw power that drove Scorsese's early successes is clearly behind the wheel here as well, though it may be something of a lost work in his larger canon. Street Scenes is nevertheless an important one. In his forceful rebuke of Vietnam and the events of Kent State, the film sees Scorsese step out from the shadow of his old world heritage and embrace his destiny as an artist of his own time. Thank you for listening to the Director Series. For a deeper dive into your favorite filmmakers, go to www.directorseries.net. The Director Series is made possible in large part by our generous supporters on Patreon. Please visit us at patreon.com backslash directorseries to see how your contribution enables the continued production of video essays and text articles on your favorite contemporary and classic film directors. Thank you.